Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dan Horn and Ann Saker, reporters for the Pulitzer Prize-winning Cincinnati Inquirer. The Inquirer won the 2018 Pulitzer for local reporting for the multimedia series Seven Days of Heroin. Horn is a veteran reporter who spent his entire professional career in Cincinnati covering a wide range of beats. Saker's long reporting experience has taken her coast-to-coast with stints in Washington, D.C., Raleigh, North Carolina, Portland, Oregon, and back to Ohio in 2014 to cover the science of health and the business of medicine. Dan, you won the Pulitzer Prize. The Inquirer did a whole team of you uh, for local reporting on seven days of heroin. Talk about the concept of how you started out with that series. What what prompted you to take the tack that you did? Sure. Um, you know, Terry DeMio was our uh, heroin reporter and has been for several years, and she's one of a handful of reporters in the country who has that designation of covering the heroin epidemic. And she and I had worked on a number of stories together for, for several years. And uh, she had found she was bumping up against a problem with this. And, and the problem was people were becoming a little desensitized to this issue. They just weren't seeing the problem the way she was seeing it every day on the streets and in parks and in, in restaurant parking lots where this thing was happening. And uh, there was some frustration there. I think, you know, there was a core audience that followed everything she was doing because she was doing great work. But, you know, once you broke outside the public health officials and law enforcement and families affected by this, it became harder to kind of get traction with the broader. It was confined, right? Correct, yeah. And and so I, we started kicking around ideas um, about how we might be able to get beyond that, um, that core group. And one of those ideas was, um, you know, kind of taking a day-in-a-life approach to, the, to this story. And, and if people people weren't seeing it, let's show it to them. Let's go out to where this this epidemic is happening and just experience it with these people and share it with our, our readers and our, our viewers. Um, and I think we like that idea. We had talked about it with a number of folks in the room, and they liked the idea. Um, the hard part was that it would require the entire newsroom to make it happen because it's not something you can just kind of go out and peck away at as a reporter in your spare time and, and try to make a project like that happen. And I assume you started knowing that you wanted to take a multimedia approach yes. to this. Yeah, from the outset, we knew visuals would be crucial. We wanted there to be a, a documentary piece to it if possible. 
Um, obviously, the online presentation would be different than the, the print presentation, and we wanted it to be um, as vibrant as it could be so we could show people and, and they could hear the sounds of it, 911 calls, they could see video that we shoot. So we knew from the outset we wanted all of that to be a part of this. Um, so we kicked that around for a while, but we needed the whole room to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, our editor, uh, Peter Batia, uh, kind of got wind of this thing. And uh, after it had been sitting on our to-do list for uh, the better part <laughs> of two years, he said, uh, he, he found out about it and said, why haven't we done this? You know, you guys should do this. And so um, we explained that, well, the whole room has to do it. And um, he said, sure, do it. And so we freaked out, you know, that, that uh, some panic set in there. But then, you know, we started planning how we might go about doing this. And that's when we just pulled in everyone in the room uh, and talked it through and figured out how we wanted to do data for this and support, how we wanted to shoot photos and visuals and, and develop the story. Um, and basically, we structured it, you know, we aggressively scheduled every day, just overscheduled every day. We had 25 to 30 assignments every day with people going out into the places where we hoped and, and expected there to be some contact with people experiencing the epidemic. And, um, and so everyone on this staff embraced it. Everybody um, just really worked their butts off on this thing. And, and just they recognized it was important. They recognized this wasn't getting the attention it should get. Uh, and they, they just dove in. And, and, you know, the goal was they would come back to us with the raw materials, the video, the photos, uh, notes. And then we would kind of pull that together in what we hoped would be a real-time narrative telling the story from, you know, midnight Sunday to midnight Sunday. You knew it was good. But did you know it was Pulitzer good? No. <laughs> I can honestly say that this is not a story anyone went into thinking we were going to win awards for. I mean, it's just, you know, it just felt organic. It's something we had talked about for so long. Um, I mean, that's it's fantastic, I mean, that that happened. But I think we all know that a lot of things have to go right for something like that to happen. And there's a lot of worthy stories every year. Um, so in that sense, I think, you know, luck obviously plays some piece of that. But, you know, I, I think it helped that this was a team effort. I mean, this was a, a, the effort of everyone in that room uh, pulling together and reporting. This is the only way that story could have happened. Um, and I think that that was part of the appeal um, to the audience. And I think it was part of the appeal to, to the folks who give out awards like that. And you now are covering I, – I love the title that I've read that you have, The Science of Health and the Business of Medicine. Right. I, I, that, that's, I think, such an apt <laughs> de description. Did you come at this story from that aspect, from the medical aspect? Yes. The – Assignment that I received from Terry and Dan was we wanted to have, uh, we wanted to get into the hospitals in some way, and obviously with HIPAA we couldn't go sit in an ER right. for an, for a day. Right. So Cincinnati Children's Medical Center has a neonatal abstinence clinic that they run uh, at least once a week, where uh, parents with Parents who have recovered from who are recovering from addiction, who have children who've been affected by their addiction in utero, will take the, their babies to caregivers at Children's Hospital who examine them periodically to check for the deficits that often occur when children are born dependent or addicted to heroin or opioids. So there, there was this clinic that, w that was doing a land office business. There were a lot of people there, and uh, so our slice of the story was to go. Uh, our, our hope was to meet someone 
And we did. We got there, and uh, my colleague, Kara Owsley, who is a photojournalist, and I went, and uh, I wasn't – I sort of was just going to wait and see what happened. We interviewed some of the caregivers, and then the PR official for Children's Hospital said, I have found a mother who's willing to talk to you today. Wow. And we thought, great. <laughs> so we uh, – he ushered us into the examination room where she was waiting. Her name was Stephanie Gaffney, and she had her – baby daughter with her who was eight months old that day. And uh, Stephanie told us that she had been using for five years, had been sober for 16 months. She was living in a, uh, a very structured residential program. Uh, she had just graduated to the last level before you actually exit the program where you've got a lot more independence. You don't have to check in as frequently. And she was speaking optimistically and hopefully of the life that she was planning with her fiancé, who was also the father of Eliana, the baby. And she said something that to this day haunts me, which is, we're going to have a normal life or as normal as addicts can have. Wow. And yes, I mean, wow. as as I heard, even as those words fell on my ears, I thought there's something chilling about that. Yeah. But it also struck me as someone who's realistic about what she was up against, despite 16 months of sobriety and a child for whom she was now living entirely. So we had this wonderful conversation. The caregiver came in, examined the baby. She's doing great, learning to eat solid food, uh, reacting to the other adults in the room. And Kara got a picture of me with Stephanie, and Eliana was reaching out for my pen. And so I have this picture at my desk now seeing this little family unit. And so when I came back that day, I went to Dan just jumping with joy that we had this wonderful story in the midst of this crisis. We had this moment, this island of hope. And we were, great, this is great. So I wrote up my notes that day while they're still fresh. I gave them to Dan. I said, so long, we're done. And exactly two weeks later, the PR official from Children's Hospital called me in the morning and said, remember that mom you interviewed at the neonatal abstinence clinic two oh, weeks ago? No. I said, yeah. He said, her obit's in your paper today. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. So I opened the paper, and sure enough, there it was. And uh, Kara came over, and I had to tell her, and we stood in the middle of the newsroom and sobbed for five minutes. I kid you not, uh, because this was just devastating news. Although Terry, who has been through these kinds of experiences with families over and over and over later in the day, said, yeah, this is what happens. That's what sort of a, a snapshot of the whole issue, though, is it not? In I mean, many a, respects. A tragic snapshot yes. of the whole Calamitous. issue. Calamitous. So, so I know you've done a follow-up on the baby yes. uh, story. What, what's happening with the child? Well, happily, the uh, Hamilton County Juvenile Court awarded custody to Stephanie's mother and stepfather who are about our age and they were getting ready to retire and travel the world and now, all of a sudden, a judge hands them this infant. Good luck. And they were all, they wanted this. They wanted this to happen. The, the father of the daughter is minimally involved. Maybe a couple, you know, every few months or so, she, he calls up and says, I'd like to see her. And they arrange that. And But she is now with her grandmother and, and step-grandfather. And uh, just last week, uh, 
Stephanie's mother sent me pictures of Eliana, who's now in her terrible twos <laughs> and wears a tutu all the time and has stuffed animals and is looks Sounds like a normal just two like, year old. <laughs> yes, yeah, looks just like her mother in a kind of shocking way. So there is this bittersweet ending to this story. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we followed this and uh, we got the autopsy report for Stephanie. Uh, who And we later just, just learned through the autopsy report that uh, this wasn't just heroin. It wasn't just fentanyl. It was this new, brand new amalgam of fentanyl and another opioid that had just come into the market in Cincinnati. Oh. The coroner's office told us they had just seen it within the previous six weeks. So she used perhaps the same quantity she was using when she stopped, and it left her brain dead for four days before she died. But that quote that you said was so chilling on your ears was such a foreshadowing of of, <laughs> of, of what reality was. It really, I, she, I don't know, I don't know what prompted her to begin using. It could have been simply that she had moved into a, a, a less restrictive environment and, a, and she had access and so this is what happened. It certainly reminded me that this illness of addiction is so powerful that a young mother can look at her sleeping child in her cradle and still use a needle. And uh, that, I think, certainly was shocking to me, certainly was shocking to readers. The, The technical aspect of this story was, well, what do we do with this now? Yeah, because her death fell outside the seven days narrative that we right. had structured. Right. So for several weeks, Dan and Terry and I were talking about, well, what do we do? Do we drop the story entirely? Do we include it but have some sort of explanatory material? And if we do, where does that fall in the narrative? And um, I think I'll, uh, Dan can best explain how he came to the the decision of how to do that. But um, I. Resist, resisted the temptation to advocate for this yes. <laughs> because that wasn't my job. My job was to go out, gather the together. information, and present it to the lead writer. And that's that. And then it, what he decided to do with it is uh, his best judgment. This this is a story that uh, keeps on giving in, in a bad sense yeah. because yeah. there's just no end yeah. in sight. So you're always going to have these new additions or – variations from the original theme. How did you handle that? Well, Stephanie's story was unfortunately very representative of a lot of what's happening with this epidemic. Now, Um, let's put this in perspective for people who haven't read your series. Uh, 180 overdoses a a week and 18 deaths? Right. And that overdose figure is is only what we could Document, document categorically with hospitals. Which, it was probably double that realistically. It. We 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 witnessed multiple times people being receiving Narcan, getting up and walking away, and those people did not show up in the overdose got stats. It. So so that number is grossly undershot. But th- that is very much a typical or even a slow week um, at that time, and probably still today. Um, so and, and that was our hope going into this is that we wouldn't necessarily find an extraordinary week. We'd find a typical week because we knew from the reporting, especially the work Terry had done for several years that a typical week is really awful. And we wanted to try to just capture that without anything uh, unusual happening, without anything that that would skew those numbers. Just this is a typical week and this is really what this looks like. But but I see that you have a challenge after doing such a thorough and prize-winning 
series, then you have all these follow-ups. <laughs> right. <laughs> and right. you've piqued people's interest. Uh, you don't want to be exploitive uh, on, on some of these, but but certainly people want to know right. the, how people – Right, and we, we talked about that at the outset and how we might handle that. I mean if the first ethical and practical problem we had to deal with was Stephanie's story because she died subsequent to that week and we right. had to figure out how to deal with that. Um, and ultimately, we decided just to, to put one line in there saying that she died 10 days later. And that was the only time throughout that narrative that we actually broke the narrative to do that. Um, other cases, um, we have followed up um, not just with uh, Eliana, but also with um, several of the other folks in the story to just try to drop in and let people know where they're at. It's a fine line. You don't want to overdo it. Right. Um, we don't push it if uh, the folks don't want to participate. You know, it's not something we're going to really arm twist over. Um, you know, we were just talking earlier. Um, you know, and those those opportunities to tell those stories come up in different ways too. You know, right about a week or so after the story ran, I got a call from uh, a young man's mother. Uh, the, the young man had appeared in the story. He was at the, the final day of the story. And, um, you know, she called me about a week or two later, so I knew she'd been thinking about this a, a bit. And, and um, she just said, you know, I, I know why you guys did this story, and I, I understand that. Um, but she said, I really wish it had not been my son. And I think... You know, I got that, and we had talked about this at the outset of the story, that we were going to be, just by definition, in some ways being unfair to folks because if we picked a different week, we'd have a different kid. We'd have a different person, and we'd never – they wouldn't be in the paper when they were having their worst day ever. Um, and we understood that that was part of the price we were paying for this story was that we, we had to treat people with dignity and respect, but we also had to recognize – um, that if we're going to tell the story honestly, we have to show it um, within reason, a, a, as real as it is. And um, you know, in that case, we I talked to her quite a bit. She wasn't angry, but she, you know, she was fr she's a mom and she's sure. frustrated. She said, you know, that's not the, the kid that I raised. That's not that's not that's not my son's whole story. And didn't want him remembered only in that right. context, right? Right, and so in, in that case, um, I suggested that she write a column and include some photos that weren't the photo we used from the jail that night. Um, and she did, and she told the story of the kid she raised and the kid who played baseball and the kid who you know went to church with her and did the things you know on vacation with her. And we included photos of him in his baseball uniform as a kid, and um, and it was. Uh, a different kind of way to follow up and, and, and let people understand that these are their neighbors and their friends who are experiencing this epidemic, even if they're not aware of it. We'll be back after this message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Ohio University's online applied communication program offered by the renowned Scripps College of Communication is designed for associate degree graduates who want to further their education and advance their careers. It's been ranked first in the best online bachelor's in communication and public relations students before profits award 2015-2016 by nonprofit colleges online. 
In the program, you will study across multiple communication disciplines to gain understanding of how they work together and graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Communication in Applied Communication from the Scripps College. One of the premier colleges of its kind in the nation, the Scripps College of Communication, has been designated as a center of excellence by the state of Ohio. It is considered one of Ohio University's most distinguished programs by the Guide to 101 of Best Values in American Colleges and Universities. Read more about it at ohio.edu slash applied communication. I, I noticed one thing, and maybe from being from the Dayton area uh, originally, I, I noticed this, but when you talk about where you got the, the crux of your story, where you got the people from your story, where you got the stories to tell, was a cross-section of Hamilton County from some and, – and, and, and neighboring counties. Correct. But from some of the poorest areas and some of the most affluent areas. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that really told the, the, the extent – of what you're dealing with. And that was a hope going into it because this is not something that just happens on the city streets or just in the rural communities where you hear a lot about it. You know, this is happening in the suburbs, in schools. You know, I spoke at a school not long after the story ran and, you know, while I was speaking, a kid had to get up and leave. And later I had a conversation with him and, you know, he had a personal connection to heroin, not himself, but his, his family member. And, um, you know, it's just every, everybody knows somebody who's got some connection to this thing. Um, and so we, we cast a really wide net. Um, the hope was uh, – and we leaned heavy on Terry's beat reporting on the heroin beat to, to develop that schedule and, and, and the locations we were going to go to to just kind of experience this epidemic. Uh, and we really wanted it to be a wide cross-section. Now, I know, Dan, that you've spent – you spent years covering courts and <laughs> and both uh, state and federal and um, I know you've seen drug case after drug case yeah. after drug case. Uh, with that, you could fairly easily, I assume, detach yourself. You're, it's just another case and you're reporting the facts of that particular case. Did you find it difficult to detach yourself from this story? I think while we're reporting it, you're doing a job. And I think at some level, that never quite goes away. Um, I think anytime you're doing a story that involves spending a lot of time with a person, anytime you're doing a narrative story where you're telling the story of a person's life and experiences in more detail than you would if you're just doing a more straightforward story, um, you, you do feel a little more invested in it. I think for me, um, I don't know if it's true for everyone involved in the project. I, I think for me, a lot of that came after the project ran and after you started to get calls like the call from uh, the young man's mom and, and after you start to hear from parents who say, that's my daughter in that picture. Do you know where she is? Um, you know, those are the kind of things that make you feel more connected to this stuff. And, and, and we didn't fully anticipate the impact the story would have. Um, I think it was received – by a wider audience than we expected, and um, the feedback we got often was emotional from people who had been touched, not necessarily just by our story, but by this epidemic. And um, I think a lot of people responded with, 
finally, you know, somebody is, is showing what this is like. Yeah. yeah. And not, to, not that there hadn't been a lot of reporting. My God, there have been terrific books written about this. But I, I think the approach resonated with a lot of people just because it really was a day in the life. And, and so it's a life that so many people in our community are living every day and other people just don't see it. And so I think that part of it is what resonated with people. I think a big part of this is that uh, very, very infrequently do our journal do journalists have the luxury of being able to talk about the passage of time, and this is what this particular device allowed us to do: was put readers have give readers the experience of the passage of time, and with that experience comes the realization that this epidemic was not only linear but vertical, and it affected all the layers of our experience in Cincinnati. It was economic, it was legal, it was familial, it was health-wise. Our entire society is now gripped with trying to deal with this problem. And we haven't figured out a solution to it yet because this illness is rampaging through our body politic and no one and all the solutions seem to be itty bitty band-aids for this giant bleeding wound. Well, and it seems to go on. One one picture that struck me was uh, of the in women inmates who were pregnant going into the the neonatal clinic. Uh, just one after another, I think there probably were six or seven in the picture, but you got the sense that they were six or seven of many. Uh, and and then the children that you just talked about earlier uh, going on from that with the deficits that they must face. Right. Not the least of which being mom and dad are gone. And even though you may be with loving grandparents, that loss lives with you. At some point, Eliana's grandparents are going to have to tell her what happened to mom and dad. And that will be yet another trauma. And I, as you asked Dan earlier about the how we all felt about this, I right. think the weeks and months afterwards, as we were sort of absorbing how this how the community was taking it in, uh, I think a lot of us were traumatized by the experience. We who are in it every day didn't fully grasp the scope of it until we did this exercise and saw it for ourselves, really putting everything we had into it. And it was, I think, for a lot of us, very hard. We th- and I think most of us are like, most people in journalism are like me in that they use their work to uh, tamp down the trauma. So I sort of felt in a funny, perverse way lucky that I had a story to follow with Eliana so it could help me process this. And I had a partner on the story in Kara Owsley, and we could talk about this. And that was helpful, but I'm sure that there are people in our newsroom who participated who are still haunted by the experience of watching someone being raised to the, from the dead with Narcan. And and that's so opposite of what people think of newsrooms and oh. think of newsrooms <laughs> as, as being a bunch of calloused individuals. Oh, boy. Who, who either just report the facts with no feeling or make them up <laughs> if you're on that side uh, of the ledger. But but neither are true. I mean, you, you I, every story you feel something. Right. Newsrooms are full of bleeding hearts. <laughs> 
And I don't mean that in a political sense. No. I mean people go into this work because they care about other human beings. They want to tell the human story. And this is the best way they can think of to do it. And we all are touched in every way by every story we do. We carry it around with us in some way. So it's been about a year since the Pulitzer. It was last April um, 2018. Uh, You've done this story. You've gone on the sort of talk circuit and everything <laughs> from schools to shows like this to <laughs> lectures at college campuses. But when do you put it on the shelf or do you? Uh, or is this an ongoing career story that will last forever? I mean, what, it, I guess I'm getting at how do you move on from this? Well, it's, it's literally on a shelf at, at the office. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I bet it is. <laughs> but, With a spotlight on it, probably. Actually, it's on the receptionist desk. Right, right. Now, so. right. But, um, you know, I, I think it it helps that nobody went into this ever thinking this was going to happen. And that right up until the day it happened, I mean, it, it just wasn't a thought. I mean, our project editor on this, Amy Wilson, said at some point after we had published that, you know, I think we did this for the right reasons. And and I, I think we did. I think, you know, this is something that there was a need that we recognized and everybody pulled together to, to shine a light on that problem. And um, it really is as simple as that. And how we did it and, you know, the amount of work involved and the complexities. Um, but when you come right down to it, there was a problem. It wasn't getting attention. And um, we figured out how to, how to get it attention. And, um, you know, and I, I think I guess what we've taken from that is that we're trying to find ways to tell other stories, you know, that need attention and, in, in a way that's going to engage a broader community, um, which has always been the job. But I think maybe we, we – think about it maybe in a different way now. Not because we think we're going to win another award, but just because, you know, that's... Sure. You, you, learn, you learn from an experience like this. Right. It's broadened our minds. And Terry is still covering heroin, and the challenge for her is to cover it in ways that are new and innovative. For example, last week, she did an incredible story about the PTSD that social workers and, and social service agents are, are experiencing in dealing with the fallout from this epidemic, in taking children from parents, in dealing with the foster care system. It is severe. The state has documented this. And uh, it was a, a, she interviewed social workers who are engaged in this work who talked about the wounds to their own hearts in having to be, confront this, being the front line on this problem. And these are additional radiating problems that come out of this. This problem hasn't gone away just because we did this and we're all picking up where we did on our other tasks. You know, I know that there are other heroin stories out there that I can do. Dan knows there are other heroin stories out there we can do. It's there. It's not going away. Well, as a judge, <laughs> former judge, and I still sit occasionally on assignment and I get cases in front of me where uh, a young woman's had four children, uh, all of them while being uh, addicted. Right. It, you see these human tragedies in, in every form. And the overwhelming feeling that I have, and I don't know whether you share this, is just almost this incredible sense of pessimism. 
I, I, I don't see many lights at the end of the tunnel. I see, as you mentioned, I see Band-Aids here and a Band-Aid there. But I'm just overwhelmed with the magnitude of, of the issue. And it is overwhelming. I, I, you know, I, I go back and forth on this too because I covered courts for a long time. No, and you're you right, do. you see the same people um, in and out, say the same problems unresolved. Um, it happens all the time, every day. Um, but I'm heartened by some of the folks that we've covered and followed who have um, gotten help and who are in rehab and who are in recovery. Um, you know, one of the uh, women I talked to, or I spent a full day with her, uh, with Meg Vogel, um, uh, during the reporting of seven days. And um, she had been sober for four years at that time. And um, we, we just, you know, she's a counselor now. And so we went along with her while she talked to people who were trying to, to get where she is. Um, but, you know, she told the story of, you know, I, she said, I have, um, you know, I overdosed more times than I can count. And she was brought back by Narcan. Um, one of the last times she remembered she was shooting up with friends and um, she overdosed and the paramedics came and they revived her and she didn't want to go with them. So they left her and she was sitting on the curb and her friends came back and she thought, my friends are back. And then she remembered she still had heroin in her pocket and that's why her friends came back because she had the heroin. And it was sometime after that, she finally just stopped. She made a decision. She was tired of it. And a lot of people who are addicted do and are unsuccessful, but she eventually got herself to a place where she could be in recovery and remain sober for four or five years. And that's when people talk about Narcan, why do we keep reviving these people? Why, you know, because after the 15th or 16th time, maybe that life gets saved. Maybe that person figures it out. And, and what is it worth? How many times is it worth saving that person's life? I don't have an answer to that, but when people say, you know, just just stop reviving these people. They just keep doing it. It's like, well, she figured it out, and other people have figured it out, and it took five, you, six, eight times, you, but finally you she You can't did. write people off right. because yeah. you never know when, and when, when it's going to take. And so now to she's married. She has a child. She's counseling others. And what is that life worth? Right. I mean, to me, maybe that's worth a dozen Narcan cans. You know, for me, the, the bigger question is why are we in so much pain? People get prescribed – Oxycontin or Vicodin to deal with some immediate acute medical problem. They've broken a leg or they had a tooth pull or something like that. But then it moves into something. At some point, the pain, the physical pain may end, but it may also have triggered a lot of emotional pain that feels like physical pain. So that has to get medicated. And if you're not getting your scripts filled, you might go onto the street. So to me, the question is, how can we catch people who are in pain and help them treat it or deal with it before they slide into this illness of, of addiction? And that's an expensive problem that I don't think our society is willing to confront. Well, it's right in your area of the business of medicine too right. because so many people in, in my region uh, don't have health insurance. Right. They don't have ways. So – they start self-medicating af after a while, and when they find a cheaper alternative, uh, they don't look at the long-term ramifications. Well, and, or, they be, or they're addicted, and, and the own, there is no such thing as a long-term ramification right. anymore. Right. It's just the next fix is your long-term 
ramification. And I think we just have, at some point, we're going to have to decide that we need to get in front of this problem. And of course, we don't want to uh, uh, ignore the way these drugs were marketed to doctors. The whole Purdue Pharma plan was to sell this short-acting drug as a long-acting drug and to have doctors tell their patients, well, if you are, if you're still in pain after four hours on a six-hour drug, we'll take another one. And you can become very quickly addicted to these drugs, you know, seven to ten days. And this is a, that's a story that continues to unroll. Right. And, and, uh, just today, I see that Purdue uh, entered into a, a settlement right. in, in one of the cases uh, right. in the Midwest, and I think we're going to see more and, and more of these from a legal standpoint. But last, last question, is there an institutional answer to this? Is this mm. a governmental issue? Is this uh, – Anne was talking about the, the health professions, and I agree that that's, that's an issue, but – Who's going to solve this? Wow. Yeah. Uh, You've got the answer, Dan. Yeah, you? sure. Just give me a minute. Uh, I, I mean, treatment can work. It's just extremely difficult with opiates to, to get an effective treatment and to stick with the person through the inevitable relapses that are going to come. Um, I think one thing that might help uh, from everyone involved is uh, maybe a little more empathy, a little more understanding of this as a human problem right. and rather than just a legal problem. Um, our, one of our hopes with this story was, um, you know, we're not activists, we're journalists, and, uh, you know, that's we didn't go into this looking to change the world. We were trying to expose this problem in our community. But, you know, I, people ask me, you know, what did you hope to get out of this? And I think that's what I, I was hoping for, that maybe people would see this and see these people and feel more empathy for them and their situation. It's not going to happen always. And the other thing I hope that people would get out of it is that they didn't feel that. They would at least recognize that this is a community problem. It's, it's if you don't care about the people, care about the money, care about the impact this has yeah. on social services, on, on medicine, on firefighters and first responders and police and everyone else who is touched by this, the children of these folks. Um, you know, if you don't care about them, that's fine. But there are there's still a, a reason that you should care about what's happening to these folks. Um, so I guess that's my hope is that, that that kind of work can at least get us to that point. And I think that kind of conversation goes a lot further, whether we're talking about governmental solutions or treatment solutions or anything else. If, if we're thinking of it in that way, I think maybe we get a little closer to an answer. I hope. Agreed. So how do people – still find your story if uh, the audience out there wants to read it or look at it online? You can find it still on our website, Cincinnati.com. The quickest way is just to Google seven days of heroin and the first link to pop up will take you right to our site and that story. It's still available online. Great. Dan, Ann, thank you very Great. much. Thank Thanks, you. Tom. Today, we've been talking with veteran reporters Dan Horn and Ann Saker of the Cincinnati Inquirer about the paper's 2018 Pulitzer Prize-winning multimedia series, Seven Days of Heroin. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. 
please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. 